0: Donald Trump is the most dangerous man to ever occupy the Oval Office. One week ago, when people were barging through these doors, coming here to harm all of you, to harm the Speaker, to harm the Senate, let me ask you a question. What do you think they would have done if they had gotten in? What do you think they would have done to you and who do you think sent them here? The most dangerous man to ever occupy the Oval Office. If inciting a deadly insurrection is not enough to get a president impeached, then what is?
1: Well, I don't know. It's not like he had an affair and lied about it. Oh. Wait. Yeah. Sorry.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight.
3: I got the feeling of something right. I'm so scared in I'll fall off my chair. And I'm how
1: I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We're also streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow says me from brandblog.com here with you on yet another historic day. One week ago, a violent mob of Donald Trump supporters broke into and took over the U.S. Capitol building for hours, sending members of Congress fleeing for their lives into hiding with insurrectionists seeking out Vice President Mike Pence. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, among others, with the goal, according to the chants of the MAGA mob, as they were forcing their way into the Capitol, of hanging Mike Pence for having the temerity of following the rule of law and the Constitution in overseeing Congress's formal affirmation of Joe Biden's electoral count victory. In the 2020 presidential election, dozens of Capitol Police uh, and others were injured and sent to the hospital. Five people were killed in the riot, including a Capitol Police officer who was reportedly beaten by the mob. Another officer died days later by suicide. That was last Wednesday. One week later, just one week later, this Wednesday in the quickest impeachment in the nation's history, Donald Trump became the first president of the United States to be impeached a second time. This time for incitement of insurrection for his part in encouraging the violent insurrection and attempted coup just one week earlier with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi invoking Abraham Lincoln and the Bible, imploring lawmakers to uphold their oath to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, Saying of Donald Trump, quote, he must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. Well, just minutes ago, uh, unlike Donald Trump's first impeachment, Wednesday's vote was uh, bipartisan. In the House, 232 to 197, with 10 Republicans joining all of the Democrats in voting to send the article to the U.S. Senate for a second impeachment trial with the penalty of removal from office and disqualification to hold future federal office as well. In what AP describes today as, quote, a swift and stunning collapse of Donald Trump's final days in office. With just days to go until Inauguration Day as we go to air. Uh, As I say, this was completed uh, just minutes uh, earlier, but there is now less than one week left in Donald Trump's presidency, no matter what. You got that, Desi Doyen?
3: (laughs) Yes, yes, I do.
1: Less than one week. Uh, And that's in the worst case scenario. So don't worry. We're all going to make it. With or without his unprecedented second impeachment, Donald Trump will no longer be president in seven days time, no matter what. Inauguration Day is next Wednesday, January 20th. Depending on how things go over the next week, Joe Biden will be sworn in as either the 46th or 47th president along with Kamala Harris as the first female vice president, the first black vice president, the first South Asian vice president. What happens between now and then, however, still remains anybody's guess at this hour. So, hey, welcome to the broadcast. (laughs) Indeed, history was made yet again on Wednesday. And I want to share some of the statements from the House floor debate. If I've got time, we will be. Uh, joined beyond that, however, uh, by very shortly by a former congressman and diplomat to discuss the need for accountability for the Trump administration and his associates, no matter what happens with the ongoing impeachment. As the former representative from Virginia warned recently, based on his experience as a diplomat in overseas third world nations, quote, countries that skip the accountability phase end up repeating 100% of the time, but the next time the crisis is worse, he says. With that in mind, uh, we'll talk to him shortly before we get to uh, Wednesday's floor debates. Senator Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Wednesday blocked a quick Senate impeachment trial for Trump, uh, but did not rule out that he might eventually himself vote to convict the now twice impeached president, A spokesman for McConnell said the outgoing majority leader had informed Democrats that he would block their effort to quickly call the chamber back into emergency session to put Trump on trial. McConnell's move means the Senate trial is now all but certain to be delayed until after Joe Biden's inauguration as president. And yes, as we have been discussing you can be impeached. You can uh, go to trial for your impeachment after you are already out of office. It has happened before in uh, American history. Yes,
3: there is historical precedent for that. So it's something that they can definitely do.
1: And it's something that they will definitely do unless uh, uh, Mitch McConnell at this point uh, changes his mind. He does have the ability, it seems, to hold things up. Until Inauguration Day. In his letter to uh, his colleagues, McConnell acknowledged he had not yet made up his mind about whether Trump should be convicted of the House's charge, that he incited insurrection by exhorting supporters who violently attacked the Capitol last week, uh, telling them he had, quote, not made a final decision on how I will vote and I intend to listen to the legal arguments When they are presented to the Senate earlier on Wednesday, a GOP strategist said McConnell had told uh, people that he thinks Trump uh, perpetrated impeachable offenses. McConnell also saw House Democrats drive to impeach Trump as an opportune moment to distance the GOP from the tumultuous, divisive, outgoing president. According to a strategist who spoke with AP, McConnell's alienation from Trump plus the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach him underscores how the GOP's long reflexive support and condoning of Trump's actions appears now to be eroding. When the Senate voted against removing Trump last February after the House impeached him uh, the first time for pressuring Ukraine to provide political dirt on Joe Biden, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah was the only Republican who cast a vote to oust him. More Republican senators are believed likely, in any event, to do so this time, even if the trial takes place after we already have our new president in office. The 10 Republicans in the House who bucked their party to do the right thing in voting to impeach Trump on Wednesday were New York's John Katko, Illinois' Adam Kitzinger, Michigan's Fred Upton, Washington's Jamie Herrera Butler, Washington's Dan Newhouse, Michigan's Peter Meyer, Ohio's Anthony Gonzalez, California's David Vadeo, South Carolina's Tom Rice, and the third most powerful Republican in-house leadership, Wyoming's Liz Cheney. Yes, daughter of Dick. On Tuesday night, Cheney, who did not speak on the House floor during Wednesday's debate, said, uh, quote, On January 6, 2021, a violent mob attacked the U.S. Capitol to obstruct the process of our democracy and stop the counting of presidential electoral votes. This insurrection caused injury, death and destruction in the most sacred space in our republic. Much more, she said, will become clear in coming days and weeks. But what we know now is enough The president of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob and lit the flame of this attack. Everything that followed was his doing. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence. He did not. Liz Cheney went on to say there has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. I will vote to impeach the president. And, of course, Liz Cheney uh, knows a thing or two about uh, the betrayal of presidents of the United States to their (laughs) offices.
3: Yes, she does. Uh,
1: But she did not uh, speak on the floor, so I wanted to share her uh, statement that she released on Tuesday night, I believe. Beyond that, let's take a quick break here. I want to come back and share just some of the uh, Wednesday debate that... As I said, wrapped up just before airtime, and then we will be joined by former Congressman Tom Perriello of Virginia on whether this accountability will be enough or if we need something more like a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, one of those uh, committees that he's actually helped to uh, form and oversee in third world countries where I know it's unthinkable here in the U.S., but, you know, where presidents have been unwilling to cede power to a predecessor. Can you imagine something like that? What a concept. That's all straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you.
2: Done.
1: Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The president of the United States has now been impeached twice for lying. Congressman Jim McGovern, Democrat from Massachusetts and chair of the House Rules Committee, opened the proceedings for the second impeachment of Donald Trump on Wednesday with this explanation of why he believed the initiative is so imperative.
4: Mr. Speaker, we are debating this historic measure at an actual crime scene, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the President of the United States. On Wednesday, January 6, Congress gathered here to fulfill our constitutional duty, tallying the Electoral College victory of President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris after a free and fair election. This uh, is largely a ceremonial role for the Congress, one that sends a message to the world That democracy in the United States persists. But at a rally just a mile and a half down Pennsylvania Avenue, Donald Trump and his allies were stoking the anger of a violent mob. A member of this very body proclaimed on that stage, today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, called for trial by combat. Then, Donald Trump told the crowd, we're going to have to fight much harder. You will never take back our country with weakness. Even though, according to his own administration, that this election was the most secure in our history, Donald Trump repeated his big lie that this election was an egregious assault on democracy. Vice President Pence, he said, was going to have to come through for us. Trump then told this mob to walk down to the Capitol. The signal was unmistakable. These thugs should stage a coup so Donald Trump can hang on to power. The people's will be damned. This beacon of democracy became the site of a vicious attack. Rioters chanted, hang Mike Pence, as a noose and gallows were built a stone's throw from the Capitol steps. Capitol Police officers were beaten and sprayed with pepper spray. Attackers hunted down lawmakers to hold them hostage or worse. Staff barricaded doors. People sent text messages to their families to tell them they loved them. They thought they were saying goodbye, Mr. Speaker. This was not a protest. This was an insurrection. This was a well-organized attack on our country that was incited by Donald Trump. Domestic terrorists broke into the United States Capitol that day, and it's a miracle more people didn't die. As my colleagues and I were being evacuated to safety, I never, ever will forget what I saw when I looked into the eyes of those attackers right in the Speaker's lobby there. I saw evil, Mr. Speaker. Our country came under attack, not from a foreign nation, but from from within. These were not protesters, these were not patriots, these were traitors, these were domestic terrorists, Mr. Speaker. And they were acting under the orders of Donald Trump. Now some of my colleagues on the other side have suggested that we just move on from this horror. But to gloss over it would be an abdication of our duty. Others on the Republican side have talked about unity, but we can't have unity without truth and without accountability. And I'm not about to be lectured by people who just voted to overturn the results of a free and fair election. America was attacked, and we must respond, even when the cause of this violence resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Each of us, each of us took an oath last week. It wasn't to a party and it wasn't to a person. We vowed to defend the Constitution. The actions of Donald Trump have called each of us to fulfill that oath today. I pray that we rise to this responsibility because every moment Donald Trump is in the White House, our nation, our freedom is in danger. He must be held to account for the attack on our capital that he organized and he incited. I solemnly urge my colleagues to support this rule and the underlying article. The damage this building sustained can be repaired, Mr. Speaker. But if we don't hold Donald Trump accountable, the damage done to our nation could be irreversible.
1: Congressman Jim McGovern, Democrat of Massachusetts. On the Republican side in the first debate on Wednesday over the rule enacted by the House Rules Committee, Oklahoma's Tom Cole led the Republican dissent.
5: On behalf of generations of Americans to come, we need to think more clearly about the consequences of our actions today. The fact of the matter is, Mr. Speaker, there is no reason to rush forward like this, other than the very obvious fact that there are only seven days left until a new president takes office. So what then is the point of the rush to impeach? We are coming off a horrific event that resulted in six deaths. We have an opportunity to move forward, but we cannot if the majority insists on bringing the country through the trauma of another impeachment. It will carry forward into the next president's term, ensuring that he will struggle to organize his administration. What's worse, it will continue to generate the bitterness so many of us have opposed. Why put us through that when we can't actually resolve this before the end of the President's term? Mr. Speaker, I think my colleagues in the majority need to think about this more soberly. We need to recognize we are following a flawed process. We need to recognize that people of goodwill can differ. We need to recognize that while the House may be done with this matter after today's vote. It will not be done for the country, it will not be done for the Senate, and it will not be done for the incoming Biden administration. The House's action today will only extend the division longer than necessary.
1: That was Republican Tom Cole of Oklahoma. There was a lot of talk in the debate about divisiveness and the need to heal the nation.
3: Oh, yeah. Code word for Trump supporters. They have to be appeased or they'll launch more attacks.
1: Apparently so, because pretty much all of that talk seemed to be coming from Republicans, many of whom voted to overturn the perfectly legal, lawful votes of millions of Americans just one week ago in an attempt to reverse the results of our presidential election in addition to encouraging the insurrection mob that, that that seems a bit divisive to me but what do i know for her part speaker of the house Nancy Pelosi had this to say in support of impeachment describing the president of the united states as a clear and present danger to the nation
6: we know that we faced enemies of the constitution we know we experienced the insurrection that violated the sanctity of the people's capital and attempted to overturn the duly recorded will of the American people. And we know that the president of the United States incited this insurrection, this armed rebellion against our common country. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. Since the presidential election in November, an election the president lost, he has repeatedly held about the uh, lied about the outcome sowed self-serving doubt about democracy and unconstitutionally sought to influence state officials to repeal reality. And then came that day of fire we all experienced. The president must be impeached, and I believe the president must be convicted by the Senate, a constitutional remedy that will ensure that the republic will be safe from this man who was so resolutely determined to tear down the things that we hold dear and that hold us together.
1: Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday arguing in favor of the second impeachment of the president. To his credit, sort of, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy actually said a few things that few of his colleagues seemed willing to say, even as he spoke against impeachment.
0: Madam Speaker, let me be clear. Last week's violent attack on the Capitol was undemocratic, un-American, and criminal. Violence is never a legitimate form of protest. Yet the violent mob that descended upon this body was neither peaceful nor democratic. Some say the riots were caused by Antifa. There is absolutely no evidence of that. And conservatives should be the first to say so. I believe impeaching the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. A vote to impeach would further divide this nation. A vote to impeach will further fan the flames of partisan division. All of us must resist the temptation of further polarization. Instead, we must unite once again as Americans. I understand for some this call for unity may ring hollow. But times like these are when we must remember who we are as Americans and what we as a nation stand for. And as history shows, unity is not an option, it's a necessity. What we saw last week was not the American way. Neither is the continued rhetoric that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. Let's be clear. Joe Biden will be sworn in as President of the United States in one week because he won the election. May God continue to bless America and let's chart a course that history will peat, but not what's happening today. Republican
1: House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy of California meeting the
0: absolute
1: lowest bar possible by admitting that, no, the riots were not started by Antifa, and that Joe Biden, yes, won his election fairly. For that, somehow, I'm giving him credit today.
3: (laughs) Well, it's the only credit that is giveable today.
1: Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, who both lost his son last week, to a tragic suicide and was one of the authors of the article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection being voted on on Wednesday. I had these thoughts in response to the Republicans who suggested that this impeachment would only make things worse by further angry, uh, angering Donald Trump's supporters.
5: They may have been hunting for Pence and Pelosi to stage their coup, but every one of us in this room right now could have died. As Senator Lindsey Graham said, the mob could have blown the building up. They could have killed us all. And now the far right is calling for a return engagement from January 17th to January 20th. They're asking the president to pardon the conspirators in last week's rampage as they prepare for a race war again next week. And it's a bit much to be hearing that these people would not be trying to destroy our government and kill us if we just weren't so mean to them.
1: Yes, Donald Trump, with a stroke of his pen, could uh, pardon all of those who attacked the U.S. Capitol last week. That was Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, one of the 10 Republicans who voted in favor of impeaching Trump, Dan Newhouse of Washington gave his reasons why.
7: This is a sad day in our republic, but not as sad or disheartening as the violence we witnessed in the Capitol last Wednesday. We are all responsible. My colleagues are responsible for not condemning rioters this past year, like like those who barricaded the doors of the Seattle Police Department and attempted to murder the officers inside. Others, including myself, are responsible for not speaking out sooner before the president misinformed and inflamed a violent mob who tore down the American flag and brutally beat Capitol Police officers. Madam Speaker, we must all do better. These articles of impeachment are flawed, but I will not use process as an excuse. There is no excuse for President Trump's actions. The president took an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic. Last week there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol and he did nothing to stop it. That is why with a heavy heart and clear resolve, I will vote yes on these articles of impeachment.
1: Congressman Dan Newhouse, Republican of Washington. By the way, I'm unaware of any Democrats encouraging protests in, protesters in Seattle to Invade a police station. Uh, Nonetheless, the other Republican to speak out against, uh, I'm sorry, in favor of impeachment was Jamie uh, Herrera Butler, Republican of Washington. The House would go on to vote 232 to 197, with 10 Republicans joining all of the Democrats to impeach Donald Trump for a second time, for the first time in American history. With that, let's take a quick break, because we've got a former congressman standing by to offer his thoughts on this historic day, but perhaps even more so to share his thoughts as a former foreign diplomat on the necessity of accountability in the days and months ahead to help us actually heal, if such a thing is possible, and hopefully find a way to avoid a similar nightmare to the one we now find ourselves amidst. Former Congressman Tom Perriello of Virginia joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. (laughs) welcome back to the broadcast. brad friedman from bradblog.com once again our top story today the u.s house of representatives has voted to impeach donald john trump for an historic second time What happens next as the matter moves to the Senate is still somewhat unknown. But as we go to air, it is unknown, certainly, whether Donald Trump's second impeachment will result in real accountability for the outgoing president and whether the U.S. Senate, with a second crack at it following Trump's impeachment last year, which resulted in a rigged trial in the Senate and subsequent acquittal, largely along party lines, will end any differently this time. But whether Trump is removed from office in his few remaining days and whether Congress bars him from holding future federal office in the bargain, it will take the Joe Biden administration months and likely years to extinguish all of the administration's dumpster fires left burning, much less make sense of the ashes as needed to sort out appropriate accountability. As Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham recently observed, quote, given how laden the Trump years have been with scandals and corruption, it's been more of a crime scene than a presidency. But bringing accountability for that crime scene takes time and focus from a new presidency, particularly in the midst of several unprecedented crises, including a deadly and worsening pandemic, an economic crisis and arguably a crisis of confidence in the U.S. government itself as incited by four endless years of lies and alternative reality presented to the American people by the president of the United States himself. As The New York Times recently noted, 12 years ago when the last Democratic president took office, he did not seek broad inquiries into officials from the previous administration for their use of torture practices or for domestic eavesdropping. Nor did he pursue prosecutions of Wall Street executives for crimes that led to the 2008 financial crisis. Seeking to look forward, not back, Barack Obama's party went along in the name of national unity. This time, according to The Times, Democrats who have chafed at President Trump's behavior for four years are not willing to be so accommodating. They want to hold him, his family and his enablers accountable for acts they believe didn't just break norms, but broke the law. Once President-elect Joe Biden takes office on January 20, wide segments of his party are eager to see investigations and prosecutions of an array of Trump aides and allies. An effort, they say, that would bolster the rule of law after a presidency that weakened it and served as a warning to future presidents that there will be consequences for illegal actions taken while in office. To date, Joe Biden has said he would leave any decisions about launching criminal investigations to his Justice Department, which he has promised will return to the pre-Trump norm of maintaining independence from the White House. His choice of Merrick Garland, a centrist judge, as his nominee for attorney general, is another indication of his more measured approach to pursuing investigations and indictments, the Time reports. Interviews with more than 50 current and former Democratic elected officials, Democratic National Committee members and party activists found an overwhelming consensus across the party's ideological spectrum toward holding Mr. Trump personally accountable and launching congressional and Justice Department investigations into him, his family and his top aides, not only for inciting last week's violent mob at the Capitol, but for a host of other actions during his presidency. Former Representative Tom Periello, who was a special advisor for the War Crimes Tribunal in Sierra Leone, said that countries that have suffered national trauma and tried to move forward without experiencing consequences or contrition are actually unable to heal. Countries that skip the accountability phase end up repeating 100 percent of the time, but the next time... The crisis is worse, Mr. Perriello said in words that, frankly, not only ring hauntingly true, but actually ran a chill down my spine when I read it. The next time the crisis is worse. People, he said, who think the way forward is to brush this under the rug seem to have missed the fact that there is a ticking time bomb under the rug. While some legal experts suggest it would be very difficult for prosecutors to charge Trump after he's out of uh, out of office, Trump's actions since the election may change that thinking. Joining us now is former Congressman Tom Periello, who once represented Virginia's 5th Congressional District. He's also a former diplomat who served as special envoy to the African Great Lakes region during the Obama administration. Congressman, welcome to the broadcast, sir, on yet another rather historic and, yes, busy day thank you for having me on uh, under the circumstances my pleasure when we uh, when we first touched base to have you on the show it was in regard to your insight on the existential need for nations to find their way toward accountability following rogue criminal administrations and what you see as essential for such action during the incoming biden administration but with an historic Second impeachment now of Donald Trump and the attempt to remove him from office in his final days now underway. I need to quickly get your thoughts as a former congressman uh, and as a diplomat on where we are right now. Does this count as the sort of accountability that you suggest is so important for nations to heal and move forward?
2: It's certainly a start. I think that accountability can take a lot of different forms. Um, But there's a reason that you don't have a lot of candidates out there and politicians saying they want to be the next richard nixon or the next joe mccarthy these were people who faced public accountability uh, in the form of censure and the form of resignation with real consequences to them and that tends to define the path forward um there's a reason that in germany there are not statues up to hitler and other third reich figures the way in which we choose to understand our history and hold people to account has real consequences for uh other leaders in the future and the actions that they are willing to take and we have really different audiences in this case we have the audience of current and future politicians looking at whether someone like a, a Josh Hawley is the future of the party versus an Adam Kensinger is the future of the Republican Party you also have the dynamics of mob violence and we know this from conflict zones this is one of the places where criminal prosecution has the highest deterrent effect we saw this after Charlottesville where there were plenty of people who showed up that day on the side of hate, but really to sort of own the libs or thought it was a gas. But when people started losing their jobs, losing their lives, losing their reputations, when the same Nazis called for rallies the next weekend, uh, they completely fizzled. And I think in this case, uh, it's going to be extremely important to see the kind of consequences um, that have effects on, uh, again, a variety Mm -hmm. of different audiences, from that broad group, to that group of political leaders and with super ambition to, uh, again, the most extreme elements.
1: Now, the argument that's being made in response uh, to, to the uh, second impeachment of Donald Trump made by Republicans is that attempting to hold him accountable for inciting an attack and insurrection at the U.S. Capitol will only further divide the nation and incite further violence from the president's supporters. Your response to that, Congressman?
2: Oh, I remember when the same leader said that about Osama Osama bin Laden, right, and said, you know, we really shouldn't anger him after attacking us because he might get even more angry. (laughs) Uh, The logic of this doesn't hold up. And I think it's important to note one of the reasons that I think not only Democrats move forward, but Mitch McConnell expressed, and other Republicans like Liz Cheney expressed so much concern, is the insurrectionists are already planning escalations. They literally have events scheduled with, uh... long guns encouraged in all state capitals on saturday and sunday of this weekend mm-hmm. so some notion that everyone was going to simply go home and uh... and and call it a day uh, was in fact already verifiably false and the failure to take seriously uh... such similar provocations or 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 promises really from the insurrectionists before is p- part of what got us into this mess and i will say there was plenty to make my um, stomach churn and heartbreak about the images of these folks taking over, occupying the Capitol, Mm -hmm. Um, to me, as someone who's worked in conflict zones and on transitional justice, the most scary image was them walking out, not in handcuffs, Mm. because those images were ones that simply invited the idea of impunity and impunity leads people to repeat those events and repeat them with escalation, and allowing even a 24-hour news cycle in which the idea that these people could exit as heroes was something that was almost certainly going to lead to more violence down the road, and that's why this issue of introducing accountability is important. And again, accountability can take a lot of different forms. Arrest and prosecution is only one. But even in situations where the ultimate... Act has been one of forgiveness and reconciliation, it has always effectively required some act, just like in great religious traditions, of confession, contrition, and penance before you get to forgiveness. And if you look at the South African Truth Commission, which was by no means perfect, it was only when officers came forward and um, admitted to the atrocities they had committed in the black community in particular, uh, that they were then invited to potentially have amnesty. And what you didn't hear from Republicans on the floor in talking about this idea of unity was any sort of olive branch. It would be very different if they were coming forward and saying, you know what, we really shouldn't have spent the last 10 years making up this systematic lie about voter fraud And we're really sorry about the fact that we have created a set of lies and propaganda about voter fraud that undermined confidence in our elections. And we are now going to commit ourselves to universal voting for all eligible Americans on a path towards unity. That is a credible path that involves a confession, contrition, and penance Mm. uh, about a new path forward. And Mm -hmm. I think people really do want to see that right now. What they don't want to see is people who have torn this country apart um, simply turning around and saying, hey, let's just get along, but we're not going to change anything about what we did to get us in this mess.
1: Which is interesting, I because I, I want to and, and thank you already for sort of broadening the conversation beyond the current moment of uh, of Trump's second impeachment, Congressman. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you were a, a U.S. diplomat with the uh, U.N.-mandated Special Court for Sierra Leone, a consultant to the International Center for Transitional Justice in Kosovo in 2003, in Darfur in 2004, in Afghanistan in 2007. In 2015, President Obama appointed you to take over the former uh, U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, our friend, as a special envoy to the African uh, Great Lakes region and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you helped negotiate a path. To a peaceful transition of power, resolving a, a crisis that was triggered when the then president attempted to stay in office beyond his constitutional term, which sounds uh, somewhat familiar. What was there? What did you see and learn during your service as a diplomat in, in Africa in negotiating effective peaceful resolutions and transitions uh, amid political conflict and national divide that we can now apply, that I think we must apply, uh, here in the U.S.? Is is it directly applicable?
2: Well, sadly, the comparison to President Kabila is an insult to President Kabila, but um, (laughs) I think you do see very similar patterns in these situations. If you go back to the horrific civil war in Sierra Leone, Charles Taylor, who was the dictator next door in Liberia, had negotiated and then broken, I can't even remember the number, but dozens of ceasefires and peace deals. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the U.N. diplomats would, and others would often say, oh, my God, they, you know, there's dying going on, therefore this, this horrible person's offering a ceasefire, so of course we are pro-peace, therefore we should accept the ceasefire. The problem was he almost always would fight when he was in a position of, weak, of strength, mm-hmm. and then when he started to lose on the battlefield, he would declare a ceasefire and use that time to rearm and re-strengthen, mm. and the second it was to his tactical advantage, he would simply restart the war. So you could always say, wow, well, it would be so dangerous to try to take on Charles Taylor, uh, but in fact, when he was so much the source of the tension and the insecurity that the only real path to peace involved accountability for him and the other warlords who had driven so much of that conflict across the region, and particularly inside Sierra Leone. Now, what we were able to do in that case was get an indictment against him from a legitimate tribunal. It was mm-hmm. actually a treaty tribunal between the country of Sierra Leone and the UN, so it avoided some of the, some of the neocolonial critique you've seen in other cases. And we used the legitimacy of rule of law uh, to indict a sitting head of state, and we had every single African head of state back the indictment, um, and the importance of holding Charles Taylor accountable, which has not always been the case when things that were seen as, say, Western justice coming in, because they weren't. it was something that had support from the grassroots in the country, uh, from key, uh, moral leaders in the country, and Taylor was eventually forced from power without a single bullet being fired, and at the time, you know, the, Uh, economists and others had written off the country as being hopeless Mm -hmm. and um, after 11 years of civil war and it's never returned to civil war and when the Ebola crisis hit there a few years ago one of my friends called and said can you imagine the death toll if the civil war was still going Mm -hmm. on here? if we hadn't found a path to peace now there was also a truth commission there was a reconciliation effort Um, there was a disarmament um, of the various militias There was a lot of work to heal both those who had been victims of crimes, those who had been perpetrators, and in that case, there were many who were both victims and perpetrators because of the widespread use of child soldiers. Now, that may seem very far away, but I think there are a lot of lessons we can take from it, which is there's not a cookie-cutter approach of what makes sense in every given situation, but some form of accountability, particularly for the worst perpetrators, Mm -hmm. is the way that you... You break a cycle of violence, or in our case, not just violence, but racial division and racial repression and inequality Mm -hmm. and the undermining of our democratic institutions and faith in our governing institutions. We have to call out the lies that have perpetrated that and the people that have played on that and profited on that, including the role that social media platforms have played uh, and others. And so accountability isn't just whether or not Trump goes to jail whether or not those who enabled him are held account, but also these sort of broader questions and forms that it can take. And it wasn't pleasant to do. It wasn't easy to do. There were plenty of people who said, you know, these are very scary, powerful people. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just bring them into the tent? As a counterexample, and then I'll shut up, um, in Afghanistan we tragically made the mistake of not doing that. When we came in after 9-11, um, many Afghans were so excited, actually, to have these oppressive uh, Taliban people pushed out. And then the, the uh, NATO alliance decided to bring back into the tent all of these horrific warlords who had been present under the previous regimes. when what the people wanted was for all of these guys uh, to be held accountable for mm. their horrible atrocities and a chance for real democracy to breathe. And I was on the ground there for some of that, and you could just feel the energy go out of the project of Afghan democracy the second that we said we're not going to do accountability. um, We're going to basically take the shortcut Mm. of uh, empowering the worst
1: actors. I can't help but notice that at least in the uh, cases where it was a successful effort. It seems to have taken sort of outside groups working with the countries. You know, the U.S., uh, we are, as you know, we are exceptional. We we don't pay attention to anything or anybody else in the world. I mean, is there a chance? It is not like we're going to have the U.N. coming in here and helping us to sort all of this out. We sort of have to figure this out on our own. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, how how much of those examples abroad you know, do or don't apply uh, here under that uh, under that notion that we're going to have to do this somehow on our own, I suspect.
2: Well, let me say a couple things on that. First of all, I was reminded today of that scene in Apollo 13 when everything is going horribly wrong and it looks like they're all going to die up in the rocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy running mission control, someone says, this is going to be a disaster. And he says, you know what, I think this is going to be our finest hour. And I think this may yet be our finest hour. I think if we do survive four years of this racial demagogue, this real kleptocrat, right, like he really Mm -hmm. is ultimately a a grifter and a kleptocrat willing to play on racial demagoguery, we may get through this in a week. And if we do, literally through armed insurrection, if we hold uh, the perpetrators accountable, if we move forward particularly if the Republican Party, by which I would probably mean Republican governors, not the Republicans in in Congress, who currently seem pretty irredeemable, um, come together to address COVID and rebuild the economy, there really will be something exceptional about the fact that our Constitution and our institutions are strong enough and resilient enough to make it through what have been just a series of, of massive stress tests. So I think that would really be something that would be a finest hour moment. I think on the comparisons, look, one of the things that um, I've been talking about for a few years, having looked at this in our own history and around the world, is that multiracial democracy is the exception and not the rule. We've treated it as being somehow an inevitable outcome of history. Mm. By which I mean not just many races and ethnicities living together, but living together on actual equality under the law Mm -hmm. and equality of political power. And in American history, really around the world, there are very very few examples of where one ethnic or racial group has lost power democratically and not responded with violence. And we've had two such moments in American history. One was the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, when, for example, a majority of the South Carolina legislature was black,
5: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: and the second was California in the 1990s, when it was going through approximately the demographic shift that America as a whole is seeing today. Mm. In the case of Reconstruction, of course, the response was domestic terrorism that led to the complete ethnic cleansing or, or systematic ethnic cleansing of the South that is still reflected in the political power and the political map today through mass lynchings, slaughter, uh, coups in cities, uh... Et cetera. And in California, the Um, you know, with Prop 187 back in, I think it was 93 or 94, Mm -hmm. it was essentially like the Trump play, which was one last populist immigrant bashing play by the Republican Party to stay in power that actually drove together a multiracial alliance that is held in California um, to this day. So we have models here Mm -hmm. um, that we can point to and models that have not been successful And I think this is why one of the most fascinating moments of my entire lifetime in terms of Congress was the night of the coup attempt or insurgency when Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz Mm -hmm. have an exchange about the compromise of 1877. I mean, this was a Lincoln-Douglas debate-type moment where Ted Cruz, through his just, like, infinite... um, I don't even know the right word to cite. This
1: is FCC radio, sir, so be careful. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: So intellectualism thinks he's got a gotcha moment by citing the Compromise of 1877, which is a horrific, horrific moment in American history in which they cut a deal to solve the problem without accountability of saying we're going to sell out Reconstruction and the idea of racial equality that leads to a century of Jim Crow, a century, uh, mm-hmm. you know, decades of lynchings, in order to move forward with those electors. And Ted Cruz thinks to cite that. And Lindsey Graham, after clearly throwing back a few drinks, comes on the floor (laughs) and he says, you know, you guys may have a right to say this. I just think it's a colossally stupid thing to say to literally come down and cite the compromise that ended Reconstruction and built Jim Crow as being the precedent you want to associate yourself with historically. Yeah. Now that's a great moment for Americans to learn, most of whom probably don't remember that from their high school uh, American history class.
1: Let me uh, get in one more question. And I hate to, by the way, I hate to not end on your note of optimism that you think we're going to get through this and that uh, somehow uh, we'll be the better for it ultimately, but very Very quickly, you told the New York Times that it's vitally important for nations to not skip the reconciliation and accountability phase. And the countries that do that end up repeating it 100 percent of the time. And the crisis is uh, worse uh, when it happens again. Do you feel that the Obama administration made a mistake in, uh, you know, looking forward, not back after uh, George Bush and more to the point here? Do you have any confidence that the Biden administration might take your advice? Advice and perhaps take a different path here.
2: I don't think they need my advice, but I think that they do have a Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football idea, which was that Obama, rightly or not, uh, the president put a lot of energy into trying for bipartisanship. People forget. We joked the first year that I was in Congress that the only way to get a meeting with President Obama was to become a Republican. Mm -hmm. He really wanted that kind of bringing the country together. And McConnell and Cantor basically just decided they wouldn't give it to him, not because they disagreed with the policy, Mm -hmm. but specifically because they didn't want him to be a unifier. And so I think what the Biden administration has learned from that is saying, look, we do want to unify the country, but that unity probably happens outside the beltway before it happens inside the beltway. Mm -hmm. And what they need to do is present a unifying agenda around getting every school, stadium, and small business open, getting wages up, getting prescription drug costs and housing costs down. These are all things getting, you know, a living wage. These are all things that actually unify Americans, including Republican voters, and it should include Republican governors. But as long as Republican leadership in Congress is playing a zero-sum game that they have played very successfully for over a decade. Mm-hmm. There is no path to unity because they don't want unity. So I think that what what President Biden, President-elect Biden, feels in his just core is one, empathy for those who are suffering. So I think he is extremely eager to focus the energy on how do we help all of the Americans that are out of jobs, that are facing eviction, uh, that can't afford to pay their bills, that don't know uh... where their health care is coming from that's his core thing how do I help people that are struggling and build back a better more inclusive american dream the second is he really does believe in forgiveness and healing and he knows what human suffering feels like from his own personal experiences and he is i think going to be an easy sell it is pushing on an open door the second mcconnell or mccarthy want to get together and say hey We want to do the same thing of getting every school, small business, and stadium open, but we just love you to look at some of our ideas for it.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: Biden's going to open the door. He's going to pull an all-nighter. He's going to get it done with them. The second that they want that conversation, what I think he's not going to do is hold the American people hostage to them saying, we don't even want to do that. Like We don't even want to get the economy going again. We don't even want to get wages up. We don't even want to make the American dream affordable again so he's setting a goal of what to accomplish and inviting anyone to help put the best ideas on the table and i think that's what unity looks
1: like well that may be what unity looks like but it does not it's not what accountability looks like and if the argument is that you can't have healing without accountability i'm just not sure how he walks that Both of those fine lines at the same time, I think he needs to. I think we need to have accountability for the reasons that you say. Uh, As much as I'd like to see him reach out and work with the Republicans, I just don't know if that can both happen at the same time, and I'm not sure which will or should take priority.
2: Look, I think there are plenty of Republican governors out there that don't really want to be associated with donald trump particularly if he's facing both criminal and civil prosecution when he leaves office which he almost certainly will be and i think the issue for biden right now probably is not will he pursue accountability of trump but will he in any way stand in the way Mm. of accountability for trump and i think that it is important for the country that he allow that to happen and i Mm. think it's not insignificant that merrick garland who you correctly described as being pretty centrist as an attorney general cut his teeth being the most successful prosecutor of domestic terrorism mm. um, in the last century, going after both the Unabomber and the Oklahoma City bomber. So this is someone who knows and takes very seriously threats to our national security, both foreign and domestic. And I think you know that is very important, and that can be a process, as we saw after Charlottesville, where I'm from and I was in the streets that day. That it was a process of not just arresting but bankrupting. These networks, and there were a lot of people that were thought it was kind of cool to be associated with um, some of these hateful figures, but they were nowhere to be found a year later when those people became uh, toxic. So I think you know what we want to do is draw the line where it should be, which is: Are you serious about American democracy and about solving America's problems? And if so, bring your best ideas to the table. And if you're not, if you're just interested in hateful demagoguing, then you know,
1: better luck next time. Well, there you go. We will take your uh, optimistic thought about uh, Judge Garland, soon to be, hopefully, uh, Attorney General Garland. I will take that optimistic note that he will bring accountability to the domestic terrorists that uh, we are now looking at in this country. Tom Periello is a former diplomat and congressman from Virginia's great 5th District. He is now the Executive Director of the Open Society Foundation for the U.S. You can find them at OpenSocietyFoundations.org. You can find Tom on the Twitters at Tom Periello. And you can find Open Society there as well. They are simply Open Society on the Twitters. Mr. Periello, great uh, speaking with you today. I hope you don't mind if we give you a shout down the road in the near future when we find out if you were right or wrong about all of this. All right. Please stay safe. Thanks, Tom. All right. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's historic show or any other, feel free to download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. That is it. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.